I'm Matt Williams, and you're listening to The Wild Voices Project. Today, I'm speaking to Pamela Abbott, Director of Programmes for the World Conservation Monitoring Centre, Founder of the Women in Conservation Leadership Network, Musician and Runner. Um, so... So, sorry. No, 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 that's fine. That's really interesting. So I want to rewind slightly because yeah, yeah. I always, or I usually start with the question, which is, were nature or wildlife things that were important to you growing up? Yeah, yeah? I think so. I did that typical child in the car, look at this amazing landscape. No, I'm not going to look at it. I don't want to be here kind of thing that you do. But nevertheless, spent a lot of time sort of walking alongside Welsh rivers or being an only child of the family at that time Mm. so a lot of time on my own in nature actually really enjoying it and um despite the slight reluctance when i was dragged up a hill or that kind (laughs) of thing and then when i was 17 i started volunteering for the national trust okay uh, on the acorn camps which is the week-long conservation uh volunteering weeks you go and stay somewhere and and you do roadie bashing or archaeological digs and that kind of thing and I did that for a couple of years and then I led my first one when I was 18. Oh wow that's quite a quick progression. Oh it's quite quick <laughs> and, and then and I did that for 10 years and I also then uh, was on the National Trust Forum which was a thing that guided the National Trust as to what it should do with the future of its young people and volunteers and that kind of thing. Right. I tried to guide it I'm not sure how successfully we were and then I trained the lead, new leaders of the and we had a weekend training courses and we used to train them in the whole thing about you know leading people I was quite young I was kind of you know very early 20s mm. at the time um because it was before I had I had my first I got married and had my first child at 25 so it was before then yeah um imparting my massed wisdom of my massively mature years <laughs> um as to how to do all of do all of these things um and then actually I was it was, I became a head gardener. So I really, really wanted to be a ranger. I really wanted to be a National Trust ranger. Mm. I really wanted to have some landscape to look after and conserve. Did and that come from doing the acorn camps? Did I you think kind of, it did. Yeah? Yeah, I think it did. I and mean, I think it sort of tapped into something that was, you know, all about being outdoors, all about amazing landscapes and not so much individual bits of wildlife. I've never been particularly fixated on any species. It's all been about being outside in nature, you know, being in woodlands and the feel and the sound that that, you know, amazing space and smell and all of the sensory elements of being outdoors and and therefore wanting to manage it in a way that then keeps it and and makes it even more diverse you know like bluebell woods making you know trying to keep the deer out trying to you know (laughs) coppicing you know did the management intervention so carrying on those kind of centuries of of management interventions to keep the english landscape uh, the with the amazingness that it has now Mm. so that kind of really motivated me that sort of continuation and just how beautiful things were wildfire meadows and woodlands in particular Mm. it's just really and chalk downland, I was sort of on the Ellington Kent among orchards and the North Downs. So that was really nice. 
and uh, yeah so that kind of that I suppose that drove me into it and I and I did a geography degree which I didn't finish because I was a bit naughty didn't really work hard enough (laughs) did lots of music got quite distracted it was quite dull these days I would have done one of those masses and masses of practical courses that they do in conservation but they just didn't exist then yeah and oh, I did okay. geography and it was really boring so I passed the plant sciences bit because that was really interesting mm. but the kind of geography it's like human geography god this is dull um, so I didn't do that and I, I did, didn't finish it and then and then I got a job but because and then I tried to get in there was a schemes for people who were unemployed to and I did lots of volunteering at the time mm. like most of the time volunteering for the National Trust in this time going for a week here and a week there and a week you know like six weeks in a doing six weeks worth of camps maybe in about 10 weeks mm-hmm. and in that time I was applying to um, be these you had s- special jobs that you could apply for if you'd been unemployed but I didn't get any of those and I thought oh, I just need to earn some money so I applied to be an accommodation officer and I thought oh my dream is dead you know I'm 23 <laughs> the world has ended I'm an accommodation officer but actually it was brilliant because it taught me how to go out on site somebody's yeah. house build a rapport with somebody really quickly write a succinct report mm. make an assessment you know actually and the office skills of turning up on time and all that kind of thing you know so it was actually really really good and then I thought well okay if I can't get into being a ranger how about being a gardener so I was going to do a year long course and then the government stopped those so I went and had a chat with Fitzwilliam College and said can I just volunteer here and they said, oh, actually, would you like a job? And then we'll pay for you to go on training. So oh, wow. Amazing. Okay, then. <laughs> and then a year later, um, next door, Newhall, um, yeah. Murray Edwards, as it is now, were advertising for a head gardener. And I'd been in gardening a year, so obviously it was massively experienced, 24. Obviously very old, too. Very wise. <laughs> and they advertised once, and I thought, oh, no, I'm only one year into my course and one year into gardening, I won't apply. And then they advertised again. And I thought, well, they're obviously having trouble. And they said that I either want you to have a Master of Horticulture, which is like, it, it's it's sort of PhD level. It is a Master's, but it's really, really hard. Much harder than most Masters. Yeah. Or Sitting Girls Phase 2, which I was doing. I'm like, they do not know what they're talking about and they're desperate. So what's the second one? I don't know what that is. It's it's a, like an O-level. Oh, so okay. it's basically, would you like an O-level or yeah. GCSE in horticulture? Mm. Either a GCSE or a PhD in horticulture. They kind of put those two things alongside. And I thought, these people don't know what they're talking about. And they're re-advertising what's to lose. And I applied and got it. And then, so that, then, then I, then I took it on and created a wildlife garden and started sort of actually bringing it. And then we stopped using all the chemicals on the lawns and we started using the seaweed extract and, you know, kind of turned it around from actually what everybody did at the time which is douse their gardens with masses of chemicals i was going to say was that quite a different approach for cambridge college gardens at the time was that something it was it was it was i mean i I wouldn't say i was kind of (coughs) the at the forefront but it it wasn't you know stand a standard thing was that you you really did use an awful lot of chemicals yeah and we all went on i'm still actually qualified and we, we all went on training courses about the chemicals that we used but I just sort of thought, mm, I'd like to not use as many of these. And we didn't, you know, we weren't kings. You know, we didn't have this pristine King's College chapel and having to have this amazing sword. So, you know, we had circumstances with us, really, mm-hmm. to to actually be like that. And, and a lot of the gardeners really 
they use leaf mould collecting kind of improve the soil like that and I built about six compost bays all around the place so it was it was sort of trying to think well actually let's be self-sufficient let's try and use nature to look after nature mm-hmm. um, and put little habitat piles in and planted fritillaries it's no knowledge of provenance got not the guardian <laughs> popped them in it's just like all these things that come down you're like oh that really okay never mind it's just you know because that kind of thing it wasn't really talked about then yeah i mean maybe in conservation circles but in gardening circles there wasn't really that knowledge and there wasn't much crossover actually between the the two of them but we we i kind of restarted with a couple of other people um head gardeners committee to share ideas and share tools and kind of go on trips learning trips and support all our students and all of that kind of thing and I think that was that kind of thing has been repeated which is same as the Cambridge Conservation Forum you know that that bringing people together to pool expertise and to Mm. and to even if you're not doing quite the same kind of thing research Mm. practitioner to really being sparked by the interest of something else and go oh actually that and uh, we we could do that to share new practice yeah yeah which is a bit like i mean i had no knowledge of gender studies and all of that kind of thing when i started the women in conservation leadership i just saw that there were not enough women in leadership of conservation organizations so i thought well i don't know what to do but if we start a network maybe we'll work out what to do. Mm. I don't think we have quite worked out what to do yet, but we've, we've become a lot more knowledgeable and we've created a group of people who are self-supporting and who feel that that is... It's it's okay to say, yeah. actually, this isn't right. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of supports people and gives people permission to kind of stand up for themselves and stand up for others. Yeah. So when you were, when you were doing the gardening work, were you still keeping in touch with the National Trust or maintaining like were you still visiting landscapes and getting outside of Cambridge? Yeah so I still volunteer for the National Trust it became difficult because I didn't do the week-long courses anymore yeah. because I only had four weeks holiday and I worked outdoors all the time and I had then I was 25 got married had my first child and then two years later had my second child and I only had four weeks holiday yeah and so what my offering to the National Trust was I will train your leaders you know in a weekend and I did that for a little while and then they decided that anybody who was a leader trainer had to do a, a week-long course which I can kind of see that they might want to do that but actually for me that's a third of my fourth, fourth quarter it's a quarter <laughs> of my annual leave yeah. to do something that actually I did for my job you know my job was being in charge of a team of five people and doing work outdoors so it's not that I kind of worked in a bank and didn't kind of keep I didn't have a knowledge of tools or all of that kind of health and safety managing people in an outdoor environment so it kind of it was just it's a bit national trusty actually it's like, this is the way we will do things and this is the way for everybody mm-hmm. and and so I fell foul of it and I stopped doing it mm-hmm. which is a shame really so but I was working outdoors and I was doing things with nature and I started teaching there's a course called Gardener's Nature Reserve which right. is actually a standard course, part of the Royal Horticultural Society. And I started teaching it in the Botanic Garden for amateurs. Yeah. To um, As part of a series of courses, I taught them all sorts of things um, about proper gardening. But the Gardener's Nature Reserve one was just really, you know, a joy because you could impart your enthusiasm, I could impart my enthusiasm for 
people to be able to make their gardens not just beautiful but actually suitable for nature and it really wasn't very hard and it, it feels like you know that course and the RHS were you know 20 years down the line the RSBB give nature a home you know this is this is very much it was sort of at, it was the forerunner of yes. all of that yeah and we did those things and in fact it was actually an RSBB book that I used to um, share with people about the different bird, types of bird feeding things yeah you know because birds are not my area of expertise i know you're massively enthusiastic for them i actually <laughs> I did really like did them. i really did think it was a pokemon and i thought it was a joke when you were doing that purple swamp pen thing <laughs> i was like this, this is actually probably a pokemon um, no a real bird it was a real bird and then i saw there was an rsv bit like, oh matt was matt was a real bird yeah um but you're right this this wildlife gardening thing is now what they see mm. as kind of you know the one of the most sensible mainstream routes into getting people outside, even if that's just you know out in their back garden, and then kind of tapping into people's and interest for me, in wildlife. For me, parkruns doing that as well. Right. Okay. Because, so talk a bit about that. So, yeah. so parkrun weekly five k timed run at nine o'clock every Saturday. Mm-hmm. It's very much in line with. Um, uh, the number 10's nudge unit principles on psychology in that you need to remove all the barriers. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to pay, you don't have to be fast, you actually don't have to run, you can walk. All you have to do is print your barcode to get a result and actually you can turn up and do it even if you don't have a barcode. So the only thing you have to do is arrive there at nine o'clock <laughs> and then you can go around with everybody else. And be part of a community just and by showing up. Just by showing up, be part yeah. of a community where... Actually, because you're all in Lycra, I mean, I discovered somebody was a climate change actuary. But I've been running around with it. Well, it's basically somebody who advises business on their financial risk um, in relation to climate change. I see. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, and I've been running around with her for about four years and I I had no idea. (laughs) Um, 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 And so everyone is in Lycra. So that's the lovely thing. so you meet people and then and you don't make the judgments about people because you actually don't know what their jobs are. You don't know where they live. You don't know anything about them other than sort of are they quite friendly or not. And even then you kind of you don't make a massive judgment about it. And everyone the kind of everyone cheers everyone else on. Mm. So the slow run, you know, the fast runners whiz past me and go, God Pamela. And then I that I go, go on whoever. You know, when they're going past you know, so it's in a, and there are marshals out there who cheer everybody on and I and it's People spend between 15 minutes and an hour out in a country park in nature. Mm. And I was following around some young girls who said, we're doing this for nature. And I, I, just, I just feel it's like, well, how could we make, and I haven't solved this one yet. This is my next kind of, <laughs> what could we do? How can we make sort of supporting the you know, conservation and, and doing conservation as easy as running around a park you know because at the same time there were about five people in the classic kind of open-toed sandal butterfly net beard moment and there were just five of them and they were going out to obviously do some survey or they something. weren't part of the park run. they weren't part of the park run. <laughs> and i just thought you know i wanted to be the other way around i wanted to be a few weird people going and running and actually everybody saying so what are we going to do what could we do with our half an hour in a day but actually, we just make it hard. And even I tried to get the park involved. And I tried to say, look, we've got all these people here. Why don't we do something with them? And he said, well, maybe a litter pick. And then I kind of kept pressing. And they um, maybe it's difficult to organise. But, 
But there's so many barriers. The barrier to going out on a working party. You know, mm. you've got to know what you've got to be doing. You've probably got to have some equipment. You've got to feel confident enough that you won't be really rubbish at it. And, you know, and I, and I don't know what it is that people could do. And maybe it's actually the Give Nature a Home. Maybe it's the thing that they could do in their own garden. And mm. if they don't have a garden, it's the thing that they could do on their, on their um, sort of local patch of grass. Yeah. Um, I think there's something powerful, though, to the community thing and doing it with lots of people that goes beyond the doing it on your own yeah. in your own back garden, though. I think, um, I don't know, I feel like whether it's park run, whether it's CrossFit, for example, yeah. or whether it's more nature-oriented stuff, um, I think some of these really exciting new new yeah. forms of community that are springing up, you know, particularly particularly in the US, I think, mm. but also in the UK to a certain extent, are, you know, offering people kinds of community and kinds of connection with others that institutions of the past used to offer, offer mm. and have perhaps, you know, degraded a little and bit and we're finding new forms. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And so it's it's actually, so how how could people engage with nature in that so easy way? And like you're cheered on. Even when you're really slow, people are there clapping and cheering. We don't do that. We go, oh, I'm not really sure if they're restoring that triple line exactly the way it's <laughs> exactly the way, you know, really the way we want it. You know, we're yeah. bolts being managed properly for the barbastol bats, you know, <laughs> or should that blade of grass be actually a bit short? You know, it's just, we just make it hard for ourselves and we don't make our, we don't feel encouraged. We always feel, I mean, I always feel like if I'm out in nature, oh no there's all those birds that I don't know mm. um, and so people who know even less must feel quite intimidated it's quite a different power dynamic I suppose it's about you know with with bird watching for example and there's the people who have all the knowledge at the top mm. and then and there's the idea of control and you know we need to like mm. you say do everything very precisely and make sure everything's put back in the right place and done in the right way whereas actually what, what you're describing as an alternative is we all support each other and we all help each other from mm. from whatever base we're starting from. Um, and we all celebrate each other's success. Mm. And actually, it's quite interesting that we're talking on the first day of the Olympics. Mm. And, you know, four years ago when we had them in the UK and now again when they're in mm. Rio, there is that sort of celebration of helping each other to, you know, take on new challenges, mm. isn't there? And if people could do it in their... You know, if we could find a way for nature being a thing that people did in communities mm. where it was quite easy and all you had to do was turn up. And I think there are quite a few things, but they're, they're relatively small scale. And, you know, Parkrun started out... And I'm slightly obsessive about it. And my children say, are you just talking about Parkrun again, Mum? And, <laughs> it's, you know, it started out with 16 people running around, running around a bushy park. Yeah. That's how it started, yeah. you know. And, it, and I think... You know, sometimes we think it has to be, you know, it has to be the same everywhere. It has to be really big. But there might be something happening somewhere now that actually will grow and will be that thing that grows everywhere. Do you think part of the problem, I think I identify this as part of the problem, do you agree that part of it is that the organisations that have the money and the capacity to connect people with nature have often focused on the places where there's lots of really rare wildlife, which is not where people are. They focus mm. mostly on the countryside. Most people are in yeah. towns and cities these days. Um, and they haven't put their efforts there. 
I think it's difficult. So I, I really struggle with the land sharing, land sparing thing, partly because mm. I can always forget exactly what it is. But, um, you know, this this idea, which, you know, you you keep this beautiful, pristine check place, which may change because climate, the climate changes and all the species may go. But, you know, you, you concentrate a lot of effort on these relatively rare and very complex habitats. And that's essentially what actually the wildlife trusts are doing and all of that kind of thing. Um, but actually all around you, there is the potential for much more nature, but we're not doing anything about it. I wouldn't like to criticise those organisations because actually, if they don't look after those landscapes, those very special places, then mm. actually maybe nobody will, and maybe mm. those they will they will kind of degrade to what everything else is around. So I can see why they might not do that because they are essentially the specialists, you know. But actually, the, there seems that there's a space for nature generalists. You know, the kind of popular nature or something. Um, and if we could do that somewhere and put there... And I think, you know, there's there's chances when you have new developments um, like Trumpington Meadows. But then the Wildlife Trusts come in and they, 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 they kind of fill it with all their specialist stuff. And they do lots of engagement and that kind of thing. But I wonder how, mu- how much we could do with some land where not that much is happening mm. and could could we and it would have to be small places because you know there's actually not that much spare land in the uk no there's not it just it just feels like there is a model out there but actually i haven't quite grasped what it might be yet it's <laughs> kind of oh just just feels like you just feel like you're on the cusp of thinking this this model there and that's a bit like that learning between researchers and practitioners you yeah. know the yeah the that energy of the exchange and a bit like um de bono's edward de bono's use of randomness which it's basically you know you you could go somewhere along the path or you could just sort of randomly step off the path and you might find that actually where you want to get to is is much much quicker so you introduce things like random objects like i don't know toothbrush so you know, a toothbrush to the future of um, nature for people in urban spaces. And you might say, well, the, you know, what are the characteristics of a toothbrush? Well, it's very necessary for hygiene. It's quite bristly and you need to be very vigorous with it. And so what are those things? Okay, you need to be very vigorous with it. So maybe we need to be really persevering about this kind of thing. Mm and the hygiene you know perhaps we need to establish some really clear protocols for how we might do this and so it becomes really simple because that's what parkrun is it's really simple because there are very established protocols um, and the bristly you know actually perhaps we need to be quite spiky about this we need to be really firm about it and we could um you know we could actually get in the way and we could i don't know clean some plaque off and then sort of get at the pristineness of nature underneath and I am just slightly going off on one here but <laughs> but this kind of I'm sure there are better better uses of randomness that would get us to something but it it just it's that thing that helps you think mm. and we just need that thing that will help us think it's probably not toothbrushes <laughs> possibly really, something equally as random though. you're looking quite horrified somebody's <laughs> talking about toothbrushes we really didn't intend to go there <laughs> no no not at all it's an interesting <laughs> metaphor well, I, it was just slightly random, but but there are probably better random objects. You sometimes have to keep going until you want find one that kind of you know, yeah, sparks the right sort of thinking. 
Um, you've worked for both Natural England and now for UNEP WCMC. Yeah. I, I was wondering what your experiences were with both of them and how it differs working for, would you call UNEP WCMC an NGO and for a it government organisation? Yeah, so I work for the UK charity. Um, right. Which presents all its work as, um, it's a collaborating centre of um, United Nations Environment Programme. Mm. Um so I think I'd been 16 years in the Farming and Rural Conservation Agency and then um, Ministry of Agriculture, then the Rural Development Service, then Natural England with, I think, a couple of names in between. And you, you kind of think that everything that you do is quite normal because you've been in the, essentially the same organisation for, a really, different, for a, a really long time. And then you step out and you're in a completely different organisation and... So you assume, I assumed, everything would be different. But I went to a meeting. We've got a project um, around areas beyond national jurisdiction, ju- areas beyond national jurisdiction, the high seas. It's a project with the FAO in Rome. This is a UNEP WCMC UNEP, project. UNEP WCMC project. And I went along there as the, the kind of most senior person from UNEP WCMC going to the steering committee about, and I haven't really ever done marine biology. And I'm thinking, oh dear. Here we are. And I had two specialists with me, so it was completely fine. And I just assumed that I would not know anything. And there were lots of things, obviously, that I didn't know. But actually, there were all these mem- fisheries organisations, members there. And I just suddenly thought, you are the NFU. Essentially, I have been having conversations with people just like you, representing your members, representing the kind of, actually, fishing is fine, because farming is fine, we're, you know, we... I suppose we need to do these things for the environment because we're involved in this project and and, and just a quite a different way of looking at it from conservationists mm. um, and you know completely fine coming from their viewpoint um, and I just thought oh I'm in familiar territory and I didn't expect it at all I just expected the territory to be completely non-familiar mm. and the same with you know we're, help, we're helping governments work with their protected areas and thinking about management effectiveness of protected areas and all of that kind of thing and actually that's kind of what we've done you know we in natural England I, in Norfolk and Suffolk I was responsible for meeting our biodiversity 2020 targets our CBD targets actually that's what we're, we're helping countries to do you know we were improving our notoriety thousand sites we were looking at that you know we run workshops for um, countries to help them to organise how they need to plan um, their protected areas and how they need to plan their action plans. So there's a huge amount more crossover than I thought there would be mm. um, between the two because actually a lot of the UK conservation is nested within not just European but actually within international. You just don't kind of think about it, you just plod on doing the things that you need to do. Um, but the framework was set by all of the international obligations. Yes. And it's just sort of come down so far at the p- practitioner end that you you kind of know it, but it's not part of your everyday thinking. Whereas the world that I'm working in now, you know, we are working much more closely with the international obligations that, are, that, that the countries um, have signed up to and now are supported by UNEP with projects with us to mm. actually do the things that they need to do, you know, to be thinking about their natural capital, to be thinking about green economy, to, uh, you know, how might we do that? So, for example, a project in South Africa at the moment, you know, looking at how they will meet their obligations under the Sustainable Development Goals, looking at their natural capital, looking at the green economy, looking at what indicators they might use that are wider than biodiversity indicators. So 
there's a huge amount of crossover actually but it is very strange having moved from an organization where i'd been in so long that i almost knew everybody mm-hmm. yeah and and i knew a third of the people at unit at wcmc before i went there because of cambridge conservation forum but i didn't know the international stakeholders that well so that's still been quite a learning curve really a lot of people have kind of been forced to refresh their memories on the fact that so much of what we do in the UK actually does rely on international law because of the vote to leave the EU, right? People have seen that kind of middle layer taken out and they've gone, right, We've got what have we got domestically? And then what have we got internationally that sits way above that? that that's true. I heard in Natural England they've, they've just done some investigations about that and have found quite a lot of, you know, a lot of it is... But a lot of our UK legislation is underpinned by the European legislation. Yes. So, yeah. And I think particularly things like the Water Framework Directive. Yeah. So I and and a lot of the enforcing stuff as well. I was talking to Humphrey Crick last night, who's a principal specialist, and also happens to be in the Cambridge Corncrakes keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> so I was asking him about that kind of thing because it's obviously Brexit happened after I left Natural England. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think I mean I do really miss having nature reserves. You know, I had direct management, obviously with staff very good and experienced staff of 16 national nature reserves um and i don't have any of that going out and being on site and having some say i mean very politely deferred to and actually they they really know it all they're just you know very nicely deferring sometimes you know to what do you think pamela and i think it seems like a very good idea um no but actually you are part of it and and being able to steer where we invest you know so thinking about so ash for example at um jersing and bog has got these great arrangements for volunteers so we had some innovation funding and one of the proposals put forward by another of our um, people in the team was to so how could we get ash's model to work across our nature reserves and our other work areas and then how could we roll it out in the rest mm. of england so trying to do that sort of expanding and and then you could you can you can really have an influence on what is done in terms of the I was very keen on doing doing some science and then writing it up and then having it inform not just it being you know winged um little plover news or something which I know you probably read every <laughs> whenever it comes out winged plover news I can't remember what it was um, but actually having it having it go out there on Bill Sutherland's conservationevidence.com or yeah. somewhere so so we share our good practice much more widely. So we do it in a not like completely peer-reviewed sciencey kind of way, but we do it in a rigorous enough way. And then we think about so what are the things that we want to do, we want to try and so that we can then share the results. Uh and there's a a, a paper coming out from some work that we funded to do under the innovation fund which is So during your time in Natural England, you would have been there through at least a couple of changes of government. Did you find that um, long-term goals like the 2021s, for example, kind of insulate you a bit from from wider political changes because you've got that long, long-term goal which you're heading towards? I think the reductions in the number of people over successive governments... Mm meant that actually lots of things had to change in terms of 
how we carried out our ambitions. Right. And we really had to focus around what are the most important things. And so I think some of the more sort of social science-y type of thing and the outreach and the working with people, which wasn't part of any statutory work, that, you know, we had to fund the work that was part of our international obligations. So I think that it it, it decided where the organisation focused its remaining workforce because mm-hmm. under Helen Phillips we had a reduction of 30% and then there was another reduction not quite 30% and then I think now now there's just been a recent more um, you know voluntary redundancy program so and and you you can do less yeah. with fewer people yeah um, so I think that's that's quite hard I think you know a lot of stuff felt very stretched and it means that the things that you cut are the nice twos but they're really important so we used to do many more care and maintenance visits with people who had stewardship agreements and you know on a very in relatively informal basis though it was recorded you would go out and you would talk to them about their management and they would kind of come to you with some things they were struggling with and you might say to them that head you were supposed to put there did you realize you put it there and that margin those look like potatoes um you know you could have those kind of conversations uh, with them and not wait for them to get picked up as part of an inspection and then get, you know, fined, all that kind of thing. They they would say, oh, yeah, actually, no, I, I had to put that margin there because actually the potatoes wouldn't stop growing or, or whatever. You know, they I've just given a derogation for spraying off potatoes and a margin because they just grew so massively. Um, so, you know, you can really talk to them and help them farm better that when you go around and you agree that an agreement in the first place, it's with the best of intentions, but things don't always work out. So if you can have that nurturing of the farmer's knowledge and of keeping them on the right track and then also uncover if people are really not doing the thing they should be doing. But actually then those kind of things really, they, they, they drop out. And yeah. what you are focusing on is bringing new people into the scheme and doing the statutory things that you have to do. So it pairs it down and you lose that outreach and that connection. And I think that's a bit of a shame, really. Yeah. Because another man of my slight bugbears on the land sharing, land sparing is everyone is quite rude about uh, entry-level environmental stewardship and say it's a bit of money for old rope and nothing much happens. And I think that might be true in some cases, but it means that all the people who do it have the possibility that in that margin isn't right up to the cropped hedge something might flourish and we we just don't know what you know the lesser spotted thingamajig that nobody's seen for a hundred years or or just that actually you haven't trashed the soil for that bit in that time and therefore you've got the chance for that seed bank to grow and and that's over such a large scale because of the scale of entry-level stewardship is much much wider and you've got all of those farmers some of whom will be thinking well i'm doing my bit for the environment and therefore even though we're paying them to do their bit for the environment, they are kind of slightly bought into it, and some of them very bought into it. And I think by not doing that and only having essentially the, the nature reserves equivalent, you know, the, the people who whose farms have got real potential you for... You create one of those barriers. Amazingness. Yeah, you just have this, well, my farm's not good enough, or actually all of the farms around a certain area aren't good enough, so nobody can go out and 
and look at that slightly bigger margin, that slightly, you know, hawthorn hedge that's probably not going to do anything for anybody, but it will do something for the local birds, even if they're not very special local birds. You know, and it's just that we're we're not improving the environment everywhere and letting nature flourish a bit everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could say, well, you know, farms should do this by themselves, but actually they're commercial businesses and they will do what they need to get, you know, the profit from their business. You know, nobody says to, I don't know, all the firms on the high street, well, actually, you know, you all need to have a tree outside and you've got to water it every day and actually has to be a native tree. <laughs> and what we really would like is for you to grow some wildflowers outside. And they just go, on your bike. Although yeah. a couple of them might go, that's a lovely idea. We'd really love to do that. And in fact, we've got five. And that's kind of what we're saying to farmers. And, and yeah, so I'm quite in favour of entry-level stewardship, which is a hugely unpopular, um, um, you know, because studies have been carried out and not much has been found. But actually, it's not just about have the very species, special species been found. You know, is the soil a bit better? Have the berries been there for those birds and butterflies and, you know. And their buy-in. And the farmers, yeah. Is, yeah, it's not, you know, not unimportant. So I can't, I can't help, I can't resist the temptation to ask, um, what, what do you think will be or should be the future of farming subsidies in this country if and when we fully exit from the European Union and we no longer receive well cap is no longer a thing we all have this fantasy that this will be the opportunity to remove perverse incentives this will be you know George Monbiot's dream of an uplands which is not you know grazed and grouse shot and I'm not that that's particularly subsidised but you know that that actually we will think so what do we need our environment to do for us and then we will fund it appropriately. So, you know, on all those steep hills, we'll actually fund farmers. And in fact, you know, David Bellamy, years and years and years ago, said we should be far- we should be paying farmers to be basically stewards of the landscapes. You know, it, not everywhere, because obviously we need some food. Mm. But in, in lots of the places now which are productive, but are relatively marginal, or are very important for catchments and all of that kind of thing wouldn't it be amazing if we could look so where are the benefits you know the as soon as we find a term for it you know it was nature and then it's biodiversity and now we kind of go to the concept of payment for ecosystem services and then just when everyone's kind of got a handle on that we call it natural capital and i'm sure there will be a new word for it soon when everyone's kind of understood what natural capital is but but we're sort of moving into so what does it do for all of us and could we actually fund it and by all of us i mean you know the birds and the bees and all of the nature things as well so mm-hmm. we're thinking about all species in england if it's defra or wherever what would be the rest rest arrangement and when we did a really long time ago we did a, um, a natural England's vision for the english uplands for 2060 and we essentially you know we had a mosaic of all of these things that did include more trees which was a little controversial and so therefore we rocked back from it as because politically the environment changed actually there was a casualty of the change of environment um politically um we did set out and it wasn't a complete actually everything for nature and nothing for farming and nothing for heritage and nothing for you know whatever you can actually do things it just needs to be it's just a turning the dial it's a shift so i think my what i would like to see is the shift towards helping helping the environment help us yeah as well as 
making it better for all of the species to thrive. What I think might happen. So I think Andrea Nidson has got an idea about land sharing, land sparing, because she did say that there should be butterflies up here and then no butterflies there, which is kind of land sharing, land sparing. Um, yes. And so maybe yes. with a little bit of sophisticated guidance from Defra, perhaps, you know, actually she might move towards something where she thinks, well, why are we spending so much money on all these hard flood defences? You know, because it, it could be, if you really, you know, you have to be, I think it has to be eight, one to eight investment. I bet planting some trees on some catchments would would be much cheaper, yes. actually. yeah. Um, and, and you know we'd have to think about well actually what does that mean for the landscape so for example in the Lake District you know actually we all quite like the fells and the views mm-hmm. and if you have trees everywhere you don't always have the views so you know we need to kind of think what does that mean for our historic landscapes as well as for local people and what they like to do but it, it I mean in a way you know trying to get out of my post-Brexit despair I'm actually still you know in the change curve that moves from disbelief yes. to, through anger to depression Down and then back up and then back up again <laughs> I'm actually still at disbelief <laughs> I keep thinking I've, go I've gone into bit. action and I'm like no I really I just can't believe we've done this so I have, I'm actually still at the beginning of the change curve going no I'm going to wake up tomorrow and they're going to say actually no we're not going to do that um, so it could be an opportunity but oh, I don't know I, I just don't know because the, because the the narrative around red tape, even when the study is very powerful. Yes. Yeah, even yeah. when the study of the habitat, EU habitats directives showed that there was no unreasonable red tape for businesses, that it was all actually very reasonable environmental protection. It's still like we want to get rid of this red tape. You know, Liz Truss said to me, you know, um, precautionary principle. Well, you know, I don't want to be doing with that really, essentially. So I think there is this kind of businesses is all. Yes. And businesses yeah. do provide employment. That's really important. But actually, we need nature as well. Mm. We need nature and businesses. And yeah. surely that shouldn't be too hard. We're quite clever people. <laughs> really shouldn't be that hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. And maybe if, you know, more people connected as they were growing up or even as they are now with their little patch of land and the little bits of wildlife that might be in it maybe that might make a difference I don't know so I did also want to um, ask you about women in conservation leadership and Ah, a bit more about um, and about CCF as well I suppose Um, but particularly women in conservation leadership where that came from what it's been about and why you Mm. feel it's important so it came from so because I was chair of Cambridge Conservation Forum I was on the Cambridge Conservation Initiative steering committee and that was me and Rosie Tavellium were the two women uh, out of about 10 or 12 people and then Ros Abling came along so the three of us briefly and then I left and there were two again and I think I think Mel Heath's on there now so um a kind of 20 percent and then every year we had a a strategy meeting where every organization brought their top teams their leadership teams and there were 46 people in the room and eight of us were women and I and mostly they were from the Tropical Biology Association and FFI and a bit CCF Mm -hmm. Um, and I just looked across this room and thought this is not right 
there should be more women in leadership positions. You know, it, it was just really starkly shown to me by when people brought along their top teams. And you know, probably there were some people missing, but there were probably some men missing as well. And so I thought if we could get together a community of women to support each other, to move, to be, to support those few people who were in leadership and to help everyone along their journey of however they wanted to express their leadership, not necessarily to become a chief executive, but actually to be able to take the initiative and be a confident leader even at junior levels mm. so at the different different levels um to provide this community and so we set up the network and we had a series of workshops kind of what would you like out of this and people said things like we'd like mentoring we'd like to feel more confident and we had a workshop on mentoring <coughs> because actually there are relatively few mentors quite a lot of people wanting mentoring and so we thought well you know what are the other ways in which we could achieve these kind of things and if you are going to get a mentor how could you be most targeted to get the most out of it and we felt there were two main areas of work there was institutional change which is creating the right culture in the institutions so that women and men who don't thrive in a, you know the culture that is is the majority culture in some organisations so so actually making it equal for everybody because I think if you create the right environment for women to be more confident often you create the right environment for all you know for everybody to be more confident it doesn't necessarily flow um, but by not having a kind of I don't know a sort of blame culture everyone's a little fearful then actually that just makes people feel more comfortable mm. and be more confident to try things and be supported and so we tackled, tried to tackle institutional change, first of all, and we looked at the Athena Swan model, which universities have. And we've tried twice, actually, to get funding from the Conservation Initiative for creating an Athena Swan for conservation, because it's it's really is a, it's a, an award that looks at, you probably know this, but it's an award that looks at what are you doing in terms of your um, protocols, your procedures, and what has the impact been? So what is your gender balance across um, the, across the leadership? And in some organisations, it's really stark. You know, almost only women at the most junior level and only men at the most senior level. There's yeah. a kind of crossover at postdoc. Yeah. And there is the academic leaky pipeline where this kind of thing happens. And so we were looking, well, so where is it we could most target this support? Um, and we put in to get some funding to help us on this journey to really have organizations create a framework which wouldn't be that different from Athena Swan because actually why create something new when you've got something and we were in talks with them and they were quite happy to continue being in talks about adapting it for NGOs because then of course it could be much more widely used um, and and we needed you know we needed a person to help us with this because we were all quite busy and we applied for funding twice in a row we changed it two years in a row and we didn't get that funding on either time and it's you know it's and I tried to have a steering committee so that what we would do is people would take the leadership for different elements mm -hmm. and the discussion group in the book club worked really well there were a number of people who took the leadership for that and that took off it's had a slight hiatus at the moment for the 
summer but actually you know it took off and it was really good we didn't quite get the same thing with steering committee lots of people turned up and said so what's this all about whereas we'd really said this is about people who would like to take a leadership because I, I don't want to be kind of the single point of failure. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are, you know, there's there's Rosie Tavellian and various other you know key players in in this, but we're all just really busy. And and so if we found somebody who wanted to you know take it forward and do the next stage, um, that would be amazing. Um, and we probably just need to have another meeting about it. Around <laughs> it. So instead the. Facebook page was created for the sharing of ideas and yes, mutual support. Yeah. And I think you're a member of it, actually, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so that's been actually quite successful. We've got sort of 230, 240 members now. Yeah. Um, and when I went to Suriname, I um, was, my daughter's been volunteering at a sloth sanctuary. And the woman who runs it is a member of the South American Women for Wildlife Network. So she took me to meet the founder of the Women for Wildlife Network. And it's a very different kind of thing. It's a different sort of network. It's got a, a core of actually relatively senior people. And then the next circle out is people who are sort of starting leading NGOs and things. And then the next level out is... And so the idea is that each level supports... You know, each level of experience mm-hmm. supports the next le- layer out. And then the next layer out is working with communities and some Indigenous people um, to help them so that their voices can be heard the women's voices can be heard so when you've got communities where the loggers might come along and say oh we'd like to take these trees and the men of the village might go oh fantastic we'll have the money without kind of realizing that the women are producing quite a lot of um produce from the trees that sells that actually is really helping the economy of the village but there's not necessarily that connection and that you know, so make helping the women make that into a business so that the nature of the trees could be conserved and actually funding is brought in even more effectively by the marketing of that. And so that outer circle then is helping that next circle, which is a completely different model from the one we have, where it's it's actually, you know, we come together, we discuss something, we go away feeling energetic, you know, we've discussed what an ideal leader is, we've discussed what are the barriers, we've We've had all these kind of quite thoughtful discussions, but we haven't necessarily done anything practical to help each other. We haven't structured ourselves like that, um, and that could be a, it. Could be a different model. And they had a three-day conference, and everyone from all over South America came. I was like, "That's amazing." You probably you probably saw about it. I was like, oh, "That's amazing." But it's just it's just so hard to find the time for these things. Yeah. I would love to be supporting somebody who comes along and says, "I'd like to do that," and that's fantastic because i think my best way of working is is largely where i support people who come along with ideas and i go that's amazing let's let's help you and put them in touch with other people and mm-hmm. people come to me for you know mentoring conversations and that kind of thing but all of us who've been involved in that have actually the leaders of it really in different ways have been quite consumed by our busyness so we did have a international women's day coffee morning I wish we went out and bought the cakes for that morning and we put on Facebook, oh, I think at 10 o'clock the night before. So I, f- I feel it has a real potential to be a supportive space, but we haven't quite found how to do that yet. Yeah. So yeah. we're open to ideas. Okay. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's probably a lot more that I want to ask. I think I'm probably going to have to wrap up, though. I'm going to try and do it with a neat segue, which is that it sounds like wildlife runs in your family, which is 
which is great. So your daughter working with the sloths. So what um, what makes you hopeful for the future, and also what would your advice be for the next generation of young emerging conservation leaders? I think hopeful for the future. I mean, the the wonderful network, which is a focus on nature, and all of the amazing young bloggers like Nerdboy on Twitter, and uh, <laughs> all you know, all of these you know, Finley Wild and and uh, j- just brilliant young people who's so knowledgeable and so enthusiastic that Mm. makes me hopeful for the Mm. future because they can come and they can bring their new ideas and our job is not to crush them is is to actually really encourage them you know um so i think that makes me hopeful for the future and because you know they don't you don't plough a field for a, a while, and or you plough a field, in fact, to get what I'm talking about. You, know, the, you plough a field and you leave it fallow and the poppies come. Mm. So I did, in my undergraduate, finally, I did finish it, finally, um, I looked at the seed bank in the middle of a field where a hedge had been 30 years ago and the seed bank in the middle of a field where no hedge had been. And where the hedge had been... I kind of put my auger right down to the ground and there was still rich, beautiful topsoil and the seed bank grew amazing hedgerow flowers. And obviously in the field, the kind of auger hit the soil pan at about 20, the, the till, the, the plough layer, and nothing grew. Yeah. So actually we, we haven't wrecked it for all time yet. There is, you know, the natural environment grows up again. It doesn't grow up again quite like it was. But there's even, I mean, maybe this is kind of, I've watched, I don't know, perhaps I've clicked on a Daily Mail thing or something. But, you know, these these images that show there were structures once in what we thought was pristine Amazon rainforest. You know, so so maybe, you know, over time. and, And the rivers, you know, rivers are so much better now than they were in you know in victorian times so it is possible for things to recover and i think our generation it's our job to kind of lead the way and encourage all of the future young people to do that nice there were two questions i forgot what the second one was no no i think you that was it was that okay yeah yeah that'll do is there anything that i haven't asked or that you wanted to share that you haven't had the chance to say no i don't think so no i wasn't really sure um, so I kind of just did a bit of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> that was very good. I thought that might be helpful. Yeah, it was. Um, um, one, actually, I should share with you as well before I before I stop the recording and um, before we finish. Um, I think I think we're at quite an exciting time actually. So there's a focus on nature in the UK, but in the past few months, I've been introduced to groups in the US who are very similar to a focus mm-hmm. on nature. Last week, I was contacted by a new group in Canada called Emerging Biodiversity Leaders. Um, I'm being connected with young people, I wouldn't say all over the world Mm. yet, but increasingly in other countries. There's a a woman who's contacted me from France, who I'm going to meet up with at Bird Fair, who wants to set up basically a focus on nature in France. I feel like we're at quite an exciting Mm. moment where youth-led organisations of young people who care about nature are kind of starting to pop up in other countries and... Yeah, that's it's making me very hopeful. I feel like we're at quite a hopeful moment. Because you maybe zoom all, out a little bit. Maybe all those energetic young brains could find the equivalent to running around a park in Lycra, and 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 get you know millions and millions of people signed up to do it. Yeah, yeah. And find that find that thing that just ticks it into it's easy, and it makes a difference. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> cool. Okay, let's finish there.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Megan, is your beer is your beer is your cider still in the freezer? Yeah, I forgot about it. <laughs> 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 you can take it along with you and swing it in the car. It'll be frozen. Like. <laughs> no, it's fine. Will it be frozen? It'll be getting close. No, maybe not frozen. Although we have been speaking for an hour. It's have been we? in there for an hour and a half. Oh my god.